This is C-SPAN's The Weekly for January 18th. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. Beyond the current, often heated debate over the border wall, is there a path forward to fix America's immigration system? And if so, what would it take? Our guest on The Weekly is an expert on the issue. Tom Javits, a graduate of Dartmouth, earned his law degree from Yale and dealt with the issue on Capitol Hill, including his work as a staffer on the House Judiciary Committee. He is now vice president at the Center for American Progress, a progressive think tank here in Washington, D.C. He outlines the problem and some solutions, but we begin with Donald Trump as a candidate and now as president. When Mexico sends its people, they're not sending their best. They're bringing drugs, they're bringing crime, they're rapists, and some, I assume, are good people. We have a tremendous danger on the border. I'm going to get the bad ones out. The, the hardworking, peaceful, yeah. undocumented uh, immigrants here. Illegal the, the, immigrants. Are we talking about the illegal? The heroin problem comes right over the southern border. Not going to happen anymore. The first thing I need is a wall. We're building the wall, believe me. It's not going to be a wall that they just climb up. We have a nice, strong border. We have a nice, beautiful wall. No, we're building the wall. And Mexico is going to pay for the wall. How are you going to make them pay for the wall? I will. And the wall just got 10 feet taller. The wall just got 10 feet higher. The wall just got 10 feet higher. Candidate and President Donald Trump over the last two years, Tom Javits, as you hear the president, your reaction? I mean, a few thoughts, I think. One is, from the very beginning of his campaign, uh, the moment he descended the uh, escalator, um, it was clear that he was going to center his campaign around uh, creating fear and division uh, within the American public uh, on the issue of immigration. And that was based on lies. It was based on distortions. Um and, you know, I think that motivated the campaign and it's very much motivated and animated the policies that have followed. Um, thinking about how that plays out in the, the current debate that we're in now, the shutdown that he's forcing uh, over this wall, uh, in many ways it really is a shutdown about a wall. I mean, that is sort of the concrete policy he's trying to drive through. And you heard in that clip there um, a little mention, for instance, to kind of how, how little thought and how playful he was with it, right? The idea that, well, you know, the fact that you said that to me now means that it's going to be 10 feet taller, Um you know, that's about as much thought, I think, has gone into the policy. And then the reference also to drugs, as he says, flowing across the southern border. It's extremely clear, based on reports by his own Customs and Border Protection, by the Drug Enforcement Agency itself, that hard drugs, including heroin, fentanyl, uh, uh, cocaine, do not come across the southwest border between the ports of entry. They come directly through the official ports of entry. And those are places where a wall will do nothing but sensible enforcement uh, investments in, in ports, of, uh, ports of entry would actually make quite a big difference. The former president of Mexico using an expletive to say that uh, his country is not going to pay for the wall. Back in 2016, talked about what he described the politics of fear by candidate Trump on the issue of immigration. Let's listen. They're followers of a false prophet. And he's going to take him to the desert. And if they think that they will benefit with an administration led by Donald Trump, they're wrong. They must open their eyes. Please, you Hispanics, Latins in U.S., open your eyes. It's not to defend our race. It's not to defend our creed. It's to defend this very same nation that is hosting you. This nation is going to fail 
if it goes into the hands of a crazy guy. What is Trump? He's not a Republican. Absolutely not. Those are not the Republican principles. He is not a Democrat. He is just himself. He's egocentric. That was two and a half years ago, the former president of Mexico, Vicente Fox. Reaction? Yeah, I mean, it's incredibly prescient, right? He basically uh, predicts that uh, a Trump administration is going to be a disaster for the country and is, is going to um, lead to a greater failure. And uh, what what you know what's a better symbol of that failure than the fact that we're now more than three weeks into a partial government shutdown where 800,000 federal workers are not receiving their paychecks, including hundreds of thousands, who are being forced to work without pay. Not to mention, of course, all the federal contractors who are not getting paid and will not get paid after this is all said and done. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a tremendous amount of dysfunction that is the result of uh, the fact that this is an administration that is, you know, wasn't prepared for the job and was motivated principally as, as you know, just as the border wall itself is a vanity project for this president, the presidency itself was a vanity project for him in many ways. Um, and so it's never really been about governing this country um, so much as him being president and getting to, you know, sort of, you know, uh, uh, try that on. I mean, the last thing I'll, I'll point out is, you know, it's interesting to hear Vicente Fox say that. If you, if you actually listened also to a conversation between President Trump early on and the last Mexican president, uh, Enrique Peña Nieto, um, you know, in that conversation that was recorded, President Trump was talking about his campaign pledge to have Mexico pay for the ball. And he said very clearly on that, that of the many things they were discussing on the call that day, Probably the least important thing substantively was the wall, though he recognized that it was politically the most important thing. Right. So, again, this is, you know, the ways in which he is driving this country into this destructive shutdown that is so harmful to really millions of, of Americans and, fam- and their families um, around something that is not substantively important at all, uh, but is, as far as he's concerned, politically important is really something we should think about. And it's part of the reason why, at the end of the day, it's also going to be politically devastating to him and and probably the party uh, that is going to continue to allow him uh, to pursue this damaging policy. Our conversation with Tom Javits. He is vice president focusing on immigration policy at the Center for American Progress. Those are the sounds of children separated from their parents along the border. And this has been another after effect of the policy by this administration. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we, we, we learned uh, uh, last summer that the administration separated um, more than 2,600 children from their parents uh, pursuant to this official policy of separating families. And actually just this morning, the inspector general of the, the uh, of HHS, which, which runs the Office of Refugee Resettlement, released a report indicating that Actually, after they've studied the issue, there may be thousands of other kids who are separated from their parents and will never actually have a proper accounting of it because the federal government simply made the decision not to track which kids went with which parents. And so we know for a fact the administration is continuing to separate families uh, in an ad hoc manner. And we know for a fact that way more than the 2,700 or so that were acknowledged by the federal government in connection with, uh, with the litigation challenge were separated from their parents. You know, what we'll never really know, frankly, is how many, uh, and we'll certainly never know how many who were separated will never be reunited with those parents. It's, I mean, it's, it's an incredibly terrible stain uh, on this country uh, and one that I think is going to take years uh, for us to, to really reckon with, right? This is the kind of thing that you can imagine 15, 20 years from now, we may still be talking about some of the children uh, who are only then learning about 
what happened to them and uh, and uh, you know one day trying to reunite with the family who they were uh, taken from. So how so? Elaborate on that point of families being separated. Yeah, so the federal government made a policy choice uh, uh, last year, although they had actually tested it out uh, the year prior, um, to forcibly separate parents from their children when they came to the country, uh, whether between the ports of entry or at the ports of entry requesting protection. Um, we know that there are you know about 2,700 uh, kids who have been accounted for who have been taken from their parents, but we also now know from this new report that came out that there are likely thousands of other kids who were also taken away from their parents. And because the federal government chose not to create a single central database that connected separated children from their parents, there was no way at the end of the day for them to reliably put those families back together again. And so there are children who were taken away from their parents who were then placed into the custody of the Office of Refugee Resettlement, may have then been placed with other family or potentially with other sponsors who came forward, and their parents were deported. And the federal government doesn't know who they go with, uh, the kids, in many cases, there were, you know, one-year-olds, four-year-olds, six-year-olds. They don't know who they could get connected back to. Um, and so, you know, this is going to be something that we're never going to truly be able to unwind. I mean, you can't figure that back out again um, uh, unless you actually have the records on, up front, right? That's why you try and keep track of individuals uh, in most most ordinary circumstances. To give you a sense of the politics and how this played out in June of last year, Congressman Jim McGovern, who is now the chair of the House Rules Committee, joining a number of his Democratic colleagues with these chants as President Trump was walking into the U.S. Capitol. Mr. President, don't you have kids? Don't you have kids, Mr. President? How would you like that they took your kids? Put them in cages. Stop separating our children. How would you guys like that you separated your kids? It's wrong. It's not the America we know, and it's not biblical. Where did Christ say that? Show me where. And you can hear the anger in the voices of those Democratic lawmakers. Yeah, I mean, I get chills listening to that. Uh, and as a father of two, I think of that as well. Um, you know, one of the stories I think has gotten far less tension than it really ought to is the story of a man named Marco Antonio Munoz. Um, this is a man who in May, before the family separation policy became publicly known, um, came with his child. Uh, and while in Border Patrol custody, his child was physically ripped from his arms and taken from him. Uh, he was very upset. So as a result, Border Patrol put him, in their words, in a, a dog kennel, which is sort of like a chain link enclosure uh, where they wanted to hold him. And he continued to be upset. He was shaking the, the walls of this enclosure, of this dog kennel that they put him in. And the agents in the article that ultimately reported on this said that he wasn't actually being aggressive, but they sort of viewed him as being kind of like pre-aggressive, like he could get uh, aggressive, and so they decided to drive him to the local jail in Star County, Texas, uh, where he was booked into the jail and placed into a padded isolation cell. And within 12 hours, he had hanged himself. Um, this is a story that I think you know got a small amount of attention at the time, but really I think uh, is my entryway to understand just how horrific uh, uh, this is and what kinds of consequences um, we're going to have to reckon with as a country. Um, and I'll say on that clip as well, one thing that uh, the Congress people are mentioning as, as the president was walking in was that, you know, show me where in the Bible it says this is appropriate. You know, that's a reference specifically to former Attorney General Jeff Sessions saying essentially that the separation of children from their parents, uh, you know, in order to enforce our border laws is uh, uh, directly in line with uh, biblical verse uh, regarding uh, following the law. Uh, of the state. And it's, you know, I think that's where they were reacting to this idea that when you've got a law that 
uh, is being misapplied in order to, to, to achieve these really incredibly unjust and unconscionable uh, ends. Uh, the idea that you would resort to uh, quoting Bible passages to support it is, is uh, really beyond the pale. And of course, on the campaign trail and as president, Donald Trump has repeatedly said that Mexico will pay for the wall. He explained that line last week at an event along the border in McAllen, Texas. When I say Mexico is going to pay for the wall, that's what I said. Mexico is going to pay. I didn't say they're going to write me a check for $20 billion or $10 billion. I wasn't going to write a check. I said they're going to pay for the wall. And if Congress approves this incredible trade bill that we made with Mexico and Canada, by the way, but with Mexico in this case, they're paying for the wall many, many times over. And Dan said, would you do me a favor say that? And I do say it, but the press sort of refuses to acknowledge it. When I say Mexico is going to pay for the wall, that's what I mean. Mexico's paying for the wall. Bottom line, how does the trade deal force Mexico to pay for it? Well, I mean, before you get to that, even, he did say there was going to be a check cut. He actually said, uh, you know, in, in, in writing that they might end up uh, uh, making a single payment of several billion dollars, and that could be the way that it could be resolved. So, I mean, that was, a, you know, another lie. Um, in terms of how Mexico's going to pay for it, this is not a serious thing either. Uh, this is something that we know that the idea of a wall in the first place and the idea of Mexico paying for the wall uh, was not something he came up with. It was something that his advisors during the campaign trail provided to him because they thought it would be a useful mnemonic device to remind him to keep talking about immigration because they realized very early on they wanted to run a campaign of division and they wanted to run a campaign in which they were trying to separate uh, the American public in order to uh, uh, use this issue of immigration um, to, to divide us and sort of create this this this, this core base of his. Um, and so, you know, this idea that Mexico's going to pay for the wall, Mexico was never going to pay for the wall. Uh, a trade deal uh, is not going to provide uh, funding to the U.S. government to pay for the wall. That's just not how this is going to play out. With that background, Tom Javits, let's turn our attention to an essay that you wrote. It's available online at AmericanProgress.org. You basically outline the agenda moving forward beyond the wall. Now with the Democrats in control of the House, but certainly the Republicans still control of the Senate and a president who's a Republican in the White House, what is the path moving forward? What can be done? What needs to be done? Sure. Well, I think it breaks down into three categories of things, basically. I think there's a very, very strong need uh, for oversight and accountability. Uh, that's something that I think the voters spoke, uh, spoke to very loudly and clearly in this last election. Um, I think there's a need for targeted legislation to move forward, really, really important and urgent priorities. On that, I'm looking specifically at legislation to protect DREAMers and people who have temporary protected status. Um, these are individuals, the TPS folks in particular, uh, about 300,000 of whom have been living in the country for the most part for nearly 20 years with lawful status. And, and yeah, they're all set to lose that protection based upon decisions that the Trump administration made, or nearly all. Um, uh, but for some some court uh, rulings that are currently pending, um, and also other urgent matters like uh, improving conditions in border patrol stations so that we don't have uh, more children dying in our custody as we saw twice uh, last month. And then the final thing is, I think, frankly, we have an opportunity to begin thinking big and bold about the kinds of, of major reforms to our immigration system that we need to be working on uh, so we can get back to uh, the conversation about how to actually fix the system rather than just how to uh, ameliorate the harms that are being done right now. The last time we've had major immigration reform, you really have to go back to President Ronald Reagan in the mid-1980s. George W. Bush tried it. Bill Clinton tried it. Barack Obama tried it. 
Why is this issue so hard? Why is it such a divisive issue for Democrats and Republicans today? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a harder issue today than it's been even even in the past, and, and that's a past that's littered with, uh, you know, failed efforts at reform. Um, in many ways, I think it probably tracks back to 9-11. I mean, there was um, an effort that was building very early on in the, in the Bush administration um, to reform immigration laws. And, uh, you know, what 9-11 basically did in the couple of years that followed, um, it, it it really took the issue of immigration out of the context of, of, of its own context and put it overwhelmingly into the context of national security and homeland security. Um, and as a result, it really it changed the nature of the conversation so that, you know, you, you, could, you could hardly have an honest conversation about um, weighing risks, weighing benefits, um, and had to instead only think about the security consequences um, of the issue. Um, you know, so that's, I think, really, really challenging. Um, you know, I think it also layers on top of that um, just how, how divided the country is. There's concerns regarding, obviously, gerrymandering and, and how districts have been carved to, to, to suit the representatives rather than representatives being chosen um, by their constituents uh, in a more rationally drawn fashion. And so, you know, the issue is just extremely divisive. And I think there's, 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 there has been sort of, you know, a, um, um, political value for some people in stoking the issue and using divisions over immigration in order to uh, drive another agenda. And so we see that very much over the last two years of this, of this administration. Basically, the issue of immigration has been absolutely used. And, and other issues, I mean, even something like uh, football players taking a knee to protest uh, police, unjustified police killings. Um, you know, cultural issues like that being used to divide us and distract us from what they're really trying to drive in terms of, um, you know, these major tax cuts for the wealthy, um, destroying, uh, you know, access to affordable health care and things like that. And yet the irony is that uh, your family from Eastern Europe, my family from Ireland and England, we are a nation of immigrants. And so it seems to me that we should be able to understand this issue as Americans, but many don't seem to understand it. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, if, if you look at, you know, I'll say I'll say one thing about the Trump administration that I think is underappreciated. Um, I would be happy for this administration to end, no question. But I will say that what we are seeing, what we've seen over the last two years in the family separation experience is a good illustration of that, but there are many others, is the American public are getting to see what it looks like when we really truly do put in power and allow uh, to set policy a racist, nativist uh, force. We get to see sort of what it looks like when sort of our, our ugliest instincts are, are, are given free reign to set policy on these issues. And the American people are repulsed by it um, overwhelmingly. The president's approval ratings are low and are getting lower, um, particularly when he wages uh, the fight around things like this wall that no one, uh, not, not even most uh, of the people who are, are driving the anti-immigrant uh, movement in this country thinks is actually a necessary or useful uh, uh, step or something that, that, they, that they would, it's not the, not the hill they'd die on. Um, you know, and, and, and as a result, when you look actually at Gallup polling, for instance, since 1965, Gallup has been polling regularly uh, whether people believe that uh, uh, the levels of immigration into this country should be increased, decreased, or stay the same. We've, we've never before had so much support for immigration levels to, be, uh, to stay the same or increase as we have today. Um, similarly, if you look at polling uh, that's been done for decades about whether immigrants are a net positive to this country, those are at record highs right now. Uh, so I think the American public are sort of seeing what it looks like when you have someone driving this very, very cruel and unrelenting anti-immigrant agenda. 
um, and they don't like it, and they, they that, that's not that's not who they are, uh, it's, and it's not who they want to be. And I think as a result, we may have an opportunity, a new window that opens up after this administration to not just repair the damage that was done, and there's a lot of work to do to repair the damage that's been done on this issue and so many issues, um, but also I think to, 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 to respond in a way that actually does get back to the table of fixing this problem, um, you know, that's, that, that, you know, in a bipartisan manner. But as you look at the blame game, Democrats and Republicans agree that most immigrants come to this country for a better way of life, for a job. What about the farms, the employers who hire these illegal immigrants? What responsibility do they have? Yeah, so, I mean, it's, it's, it's a really interesting question. I mean, the problem that we have with our immigration system, and I have often, often said this, it's not that we don't have an immigration system that works. Um, it's that we have an extra-legal immigration system. Um, for, for decades, basically, we have had an immigration system where if you, if you try to do things through the law, whether you're an individual trying to come here to work, whether you're someone who's trying to reunite with your family who's abroad, whether you're an employer who's trying to hire someone, whatever it is, basically, if you, if you were to follow the law perfectly, it, it just wouldn't work. Um, we don't have the ability for people who want to come to this country to do the work that we want to have done uh, we don't have the ability for them to come and do that through our legal system. And so for decades, we have a society, we as a society, we, our, our governments, have largely looked the other way. They've, they've accepted and understood that the way in which the system stops being as dysfunctional as it, as it would be if people all follow the law perfectly um, is to just excuse people not following the law. Um, and on the enforcement side of things, we have had, you know, not just in the last administration, but in, in many administrations, we've had individual exercises of prosecutorial discretion uh, to set policies regarding uh, when and, and against whom we will enforce the law, um, understanding that there's going to be a vast majority of people who we will not prioritize for enforcement. One of the changes this administration has done very early on is to tear up all the guidance that has been done previously regarding setting enforcement priorities and to basically say, we're going to treat everyone the same if you are deportable, we're going to try and deport you. Um, and so in many ways, what they've really done is they've, they've sort of created this, 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 this mass deportation um, agenda that's not really about actually enforcing the law in a sensible way that reaches higher priorities like enhancing public safety, um, but rather is just sort of focused on maximum cruelty. And it's laying bare how messed up this system really is. So to me, you know, when I think of what the next steps are, I think that it's time for us to build an immigration system that actually works, um, that encourages and expects and deserves compliance, um, and that people can actually use, whether they're trying to come here to do work, whether they're trying to come here to reunite family, whether they're businesses who want to hire talented workers from abroad, but that people can, can use functionally, um, and that when they don't use it, we can look at, we can look at that and say, well, you, know, you should have actually gone through the system. And the fact that you didn't may provide uh, you know, a good reason for us to enforce the law against you, and we're going to enforce the law in a way that is fair and that honors due process. But you know, we can understand that. So you know, what we need to do is move away from an immigration system that for decades has been extra legal outside the law and move it to an immigration system that is inside the law. And the way you do that is by redesigning the laws so that they can, so that they can actually properly channel uh, uh, you know the, 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 those flows, and they can they can do so in a way that is 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 uh, consistent with American interest. But we've had that debate really for decades. How do we get there? 
And in the short term, with divided government, will anything happen? So I'm, I, I, I don't think that there's any realistic opportunity for us to get uh, immigration, broad immigration reform done in the next two years. I think the, 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 the conditions in which that would take place um, are not right. Um, you know, but I'm, I am someone who believes that as hard as it is, and I spent, I spent seven years in the House of Representatives, um, five of which were under, under Republican rule, uh, two under Democratic rule. I, you know, I certainly know how hard this is. I've been in multiple bipartisan negotiations over periods of years. Um, but it's something that has to happen. I mean, in some ways, like, you know, it's, it's how to get there is definitely difficult and definitely challenging. I think it will take work. And my one sort of silver lining, which I was trying to lay out earlier, is this idea that I think by, by getting an opportunity for the American public to see what the alternative is, what maximum enforcement uh, of our of our broken system is uh, looks like how you know what the cruel consequences of it are that can create some space for people to actually say well what's a better way um, can we actually work toward that so that's what I hope we end up having that conversation around um, in 21 uh, 2021 and I think we need to start having that conversation now rather you know so that we're actually laying the groundwork for uh, that legislative push so to that point, you conclude that the stakes are high, and essentially we have right now an invisible wall along the U.S.-Mexico border. Explain. Well, I mean, so I would say the invisible wall actually is not around the, the U.S.-Mexico border. The invisible wall right now is around the entire country. Um, of a, a, a whole series of policy changes that this administration has made, um, beginning with the Muslim ban uh, that's now in its third iteration, to changes in visa processing, um, to changes to our asylum law, to changes to uh, the numbers of refugees that we admit uh, into the country each year. I mean, we, we are seeing dramatically decreased immigration to the country, dramatically decreased refugee resettlement into the country, and we're seeing the demographic makeup of people who are coming into the country change as a result of policy of this administration. So, for instance, we are seeing visas being granted to people from Muslim-majority countries plummet under this administration. We're seeing refugee admissions from people from... Uh, certain countries, including from from, from Muslim-majority countries, plummet under this administration. Um, I mean, we basically do have this invisible wall that's been set up. Uh, that is, the, you know, looking at asylum changes, I'll say, as a good example as well, we now have a new attorney general who's in the process of being confirmed. Um, you know, who, you know, but the, the last attorney general we had, Attorney General Jeff Sessions, made a number of really, really significant changes to our asylum processes um, and uh, the standard for granting asylum that make it far, far more difficult for people to get asylum if, for instance, they are fleeing really, really tremendous domestic violence that the government in their home country is unable and unwilling to protect them from. And so because of changes that Attorney General Jeff Sessions put into the law, um, you know, but for some litigation that is helping to stay some of those changes, uh, it would be much, much harder for people to actually get asylum, even though they are eligible for it under under really years worth of precedent under U.S. law. And finally, on a personal note, a native of New York City, graduate of Dartmouth, why is this your passion? Um, I think it's a really good question. Um, you know, I, I got into immigration law um, actually through environmental issues, um, and sort of at some point I reflected that it was really the impact of the environment on people and their communities that, that affected me. Um, and so eventually I sort of said, well, why don't I just focus on people um, and people's stories? And I've just had a number of clients over the years, over the last you know, 15 years, 16, 17 years of doing immigration law who have uh, you know, made a huge impact on how I view the world. I, you know, I appreciate people's stories. I appreciate uh, their inherent worth. 
Uh, so when I've had clients uh, for whom I've been able to, uh, you know, get asylum, um, knowing that I helped the person uh, out and, 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 and have the opportunity to remain in a country where they can thrive and they can be safe and they'd be, uh, they don't have to be afraid of, 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 of being persecuted or tortured, that's a, that's a powerful thought. I think back, I, am, I'm, I very often think back to a client that I had at the ACLU a decade ago, Francisco Castaneda, who was a detainee in immigration custody who, I mean, very long story short, basically, over nearly a year in immigration custody had um, his, his serious medical needs neglected. Um, and several months after being released from, from custody, he and I testified before Congress together. Uh, and several months later, he had passed away as a result of the medical neglect that he experienced. And I think, you know, there are not a lot of folks who fight for these people. Um, and I feel very strongly that it's, it's, um, it's a, my, my job, my responsibility uh, as, a, as, a, as a citizen, as a, as a person to, to fight. If they want to follow your work on Twitter, how can they do so? Uh, at Tom Javits, which is J-A-W-E-T-Z. And also online at AmericanProgress.org. We appreciate your expertise and your point of view. Tom Javits is the vice president focusing on immigration policy at the Center for American Progress. Thanks for being with us. Sure. Thanks so much. And you can download this podcast on the free C-SPAN radio app or wherever you get your favorite podcast online at cspan.org. We thank you for listening. Thank you.